often feel about addiction that is a spiritual quest. It's almost like that thing of just wanting to feel at ease. And at first, I really felt at ease with it. And then it becomes this incredible prison that you actually can't get out of. Hi, Hurt to Healing listeners, and welcome back to season four with me, Pandora Morris. I can't believe it's been nearly a year since I started having these incredibly raw and honest conversations with wonderful guests from all walks of life about their own invisible mental health struggles. Those of you that have been here since the start will know that I myself have struggled with my mental health for many years and it was only recently that I started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to start this podcast to create a safe space where I could try and help some of you on your own healing journeys. This season is full of more fantastic conversations and I hope that hearing these will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. In this episode, I have the privilege of speaking with the remarkable Sky Gingell, a renowned chef, author, and inspirational figure who has weathered one of life's biggest storms, addiction. From her early struggles with addiction and mental health challenges to her triumphant rise in the culinary world, she has harnessed the power of self-discovery and has rebuilt her life. As a talented chef, Sky has left an indelible mark on the culinary landscape with her acclaimed restaurants, including Petersham Nurseries, Spring Restaurant at Somerset House, and Heckfield Place. Her culinary expertise is matched only by her unwavering dedication to mental health advocacy. Through her story, Sky reminds us that recovery is possible, that passion can be a path to healing, and that sharing our struggles can inspire and uplift others on their journeys. Will you start off by telling us what your childhood in Australia was like? I grew up in Sydney and in some ways it was, it felt probably like a very charmed life. We, we lived very close to a beach. There was one at the end of our road actually, and um, felt like the weather was always warm. It probably wasn't, but that's kind of my memory of it. We never really had shoes on. I'm a middle child. I've got a younger brother and an older sister. And I think it was a fairly, especially in my early childhood, and I think at that time, it was a fairly sort of innocent childhood because we were, it was very outdoorsy, quite sporty. Yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful place to grow up, Sydney. I think it's still a beautiful place to grow up, actually. Uh, so I actually feel very lucky to have grown up there. So you weren't, you didn't suffer from anxiety and you don't remember being preoccupied by like ruminative thoughts as a child? or No, I definitely felt... I remember really clearly my mum saying to me when I was seven, I don't know what's happened to you. You used to be so affectionate. I don't know why I remember um, her saying that, but it's always really stuck with me. And I felt probably quite alone in my family in a funny way. I had an older sister who was like a very powerful personality and I found that quite intimidating. I don't think I felt very confident as well, because although that is like a beautiful scene and it is a beautiful place to grow up, I also felt completely not how I should be if I was growing up there. Like I felt like I should have had endless long brown legs and really long blonde hair. And and I was sort of kind of freckly and quite pale. And I think I was quite shy. And I definitely didn't talk in my family about my feelings or feel very kind of like emotionally close to my parents, for example, or particularly my siblings in a way. And so, and you say you're the, you were the middle child. Mm-hmm. What was that like, do you think, having an older sister who was quite a high achieving, so alpha female? I think it's funny, the middle child, isn't it? I mean, 
Because I think sometimes, and maybe this is me just being kind of overdramatic about it, but I think you're sometimes the forgotten child. My sister was, she is a very strong character and quite confrontational with my parents, especially with my father. So there was a kind of felt like there was a lot of drama and attention placed on that. And then my brother um, was sort of three years younger than me. He was the only boy and he was also quite sickly and had quite bad asthma when he was a little boy. So there felt like there was a lot of focus on that as well. I was probably the quietest child. And I think probably it felt like sometimes, oh, she's okay. We don't need to worry about Sky. And maybe that was a relief for them in a way. But I remember sort of in some ways being quite angry about that. And have you got to the root of why you suddenly became a bit disconnected in terms of your affection? I think probably it was a kind of safety mechanism in a way for me. My father was like uh, this super successful TV CEO kind of thing. And my mother was this sort of perfect 70s sort of housewife. I was talking about it uh, with someone the other day. Everything felt really loud, like the colors, the sky, the no- the noise of the cigar. Everything was loud. And I just sort of wanted to kind of turn down the volume. And I think I probably just slightly retreated into myself as a kind of protective thing. Mm, and I sometimes think it's always ironic like when the sun's shining and you're slightly in your head it almost makes it worse because it's always yeah. like oh god like it's blue skies the sun's out I should be happy I yeah. should be feeling like vibrant and especially in Australia where life is so outdoorsy people too tend to be quite loud and you know you go out, yeah. out to the beach and your social life evolves around barbecues being, and exactly. the beach and swimming and yeah I think I found it all a bit abrasive actually and um, I think I remember coming to Europe and I used to read a lot of kind of European literature when I was, um, I had this amazing English teacher and I've always read and I think it's probably quite a big escape. It's escapism for me, but I remember always wanting to be in Europe. And when I got here, I loved the grace. I loved the way everything felt like if all the volume was turned down, it was just all a bit softer. I really felt like I was born in the wrong country. Do you recall having good friends at school or did you struggle with friendship? No, I had really good friends. I had a, one best friend until I was about 12. And then I kind of found this group of sort of five girls and we were all quite damaged, probably looking back, quite naughty. We, you know, started smoking dope when we were probably 13. And and we I'm always been, remember sort of being on beanbags, listening to loud music, sort of smoking bongs and probably wagging school a little bit. And yeah. And when do you think your first experience of thinking, oh, actually, maybe drugs is something that I kind of, I'd like to do more often? Funnily enough, they really terrified me, drugs. And although I smoked dope, I always felt kind of it was a bit of a pressure. I actually didn't really enjoy it. I found it kind of, I found myself feeling incredibly paranoid when I smoked dope. And um, I didn't really drink very much. And I had an old, my older sister who I was just talking about, started taking drugs really young and quite hardcore. I mean, she was taking heroin at about the age of 14. And I remember being really aware of what she was doing and sort of people saying to me, oh my God, your sister's a heroin addict. And I'm feeling so scared of it. And so almost ashamed of what she was doing as well. And then I sort of actually, probably the first three or four years of taking drugs, I didn't particularly enjoy it. And if we kind of go to the pub, because you could always seem to go to the pub, even though you were 15, I would never drink at all. And then I remember it was sort of, there was a drug around called Mandrax when we were young, which is kind of like, um, I don't know if it was like a Xanax or somewhere between a Xanax and a Rohypnol, but it kind of like, it made you quite stoned and it was very much a kind of downer. Mm-hmm. And I really liked that. And I remember that really clearly liking them. 
and they were everywhere in Sydney. I mean, some pubs you go to, if you had bare feet on, on, on Friday night, they, you can catch them between your toes sort of thing. And there was sort of this drug that you could buy for $5 and everybody just sort of took, bought them on Friday and Saturday night and took them. And I think I first took heroin when I was about 18 and my sister actually gave it to me one night and I was with all of her friends and I was, I remember being really scared of trying it and they were like, oh, you can't, you know, don't criticize it until you've tried it. And I remember trying it and throwing up and feeling sort of like a terrible headache and sort of throwing up. But I also remember thinking, I remember so clearly I looked in the mirror and I just felt like really okay. So was that the whirring sort of noise in your head just because you allude to taking like more of a sedative type drug so do you think that was subconsciously maybe a decision that I kind of just want to quieten the noise that's going on inside yeah and heroin did that too yeah it softened the edges of everything I think including my mind but yeah definitely I mean any I've never been someone who can take anything that makes you go up Mm. I don't want any more intensity yeah yeah I want softening what was it like having a sister who you know knew was using heroin? It's funny because it's probably not a completely resolved issue, mm. actually, when I think about it now. We've never really talked about it, which is so funny in recovery that we haven't kind of made that, um, had that real conversation about it. I remember being really aware of it, really ashamed of it. People talked about it. You know, we grew up in kind of quite a privileged area of Sydney and heroin, particularly in Australia, was a, was a really big street drug. It wasn't a kind of glamorous drug at all. And I remember just thinking, feeling scared, scared that she would die, scared that, embarrassed about what people thought. I couldn't understand it. It was quite strange. But then she got sober, clean, really young. So she got clean at sort of 21 21 or 22 and has stayed clean for over 40 years now, actually. But we've never had that conversation about her actually giving it to me Mm. at all. And I didn't get clean for a long time afterwards. Like my journey ended up being a lot longer than hers. And my struggle to get clean was a lot more difficult than hers in a way um, in the long run. I think she just went really hard, really fast, really young. And then she was sort of done. And I remember if I was being really honest for a long time when I was still using, feeling very resentful towards her that she kind of, I mean, it was, it's crazy and it's crazy kind of using head, but it was sort of like, okay, so you kind of got me into this mess and then you got sober and like your life's amazing and you're married with, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just still struggling and sort of desperate to get sober, too scared to get sober. Couldn't imagine life without drugs. And um, I mean, we do get on really well and we really connect over the program, but yeah, it is a funny thing. Yeah, because it's quite a betrayal, you know, someone who's meant to be almost your protector besides your parents and older sibling you look to for, I I mean, I I am the eldest, but I can imagine if you have an older sibling who you look up to, particularly as you alluded to earlier, she was like the alpha female in the family and and a high achiever. And suddenly she's the one responsible for giving you a drug that essentially destroys your life for a number Mm, of years. mm. And it, I mean, the resentment there, it must have been a bit hard to deal with, especially as you said, she got clean so quickly. Yeah, it, I mean, I think it probably was. And actually, unless I work on it, sometimes it can pop up again. Mm. I mean, it is probably something, if I'm really honest with you, I don't know why we haven't talked about it. Like, I feel uncomfortable to raise it because she hasn't mentioned it. I'm always quite confused why she hasn't mentioned it, which is quite funny. But at the same time, you know, we all damage people when we're using and we're not, you know, I've I certainly damaged and um, 
a lot of people as well. So I suppose there's just a bit more work to do there. Yeah. yeah, and it's tough. And I think, as you said, it's something that's worse, like just having in the background as something that one day will be addressed. Yeah, one day we might have a conversation about it, yeah. Were your parents aware that she was using? Um, yes, they were. But my parents sort of separated around the time that I was kind of maybe 19 or 20 and really, um, and we were both sort of using. And actually, I probably... Honestly, when the door was open for me, there was sort of like, in terms of drugs, it was just like, I was really off and running. And I think I was probably, my sister was probably much better of keeping it secret in a way. And I think my mother was in so much pain with the breakdown of her marriage and also having these two kids, finding out you're on your own, you know, you've got these three kids, two of them have got drug problems. And she chose to focus and blame me more than she chose to focus on my sister. I think it was just too much for her. And so I often think that people don't ever really talk about, we talk about our kind of relationship with our parents and the kind of damage that can do. And, or, um, but we really don't often talk about the kind of relationships between our siblings and also how that can really impact you, you know, your place in the family, your relationships with them. I actually almost think they're just as uh, powerful as the ones that you have with your parents. And um yeah, it's funny. I think I kind of got on a plane and I left Australia at sort of 19 and I've never really lived there again. And I think it was a combination of probably escaping, um, you know, Australia, which kind of, and also just kind of getting away from my family. And because my sister got sober so young and kind of had a really normal life, you know, like it was like, oh, it had never happened sort of thing. I feel like I was always, my role in the family was always as sort of the fuck up yeah. kind of thing. And it's been really challenging for me to change my head about I don't think they see me like that anymore but I my head can still tell me that I'm the kind of family black sheep I'm the fuck up sort of they've done really well and you know it's hard to change that Mm. I can kind of talk myself out of it but actually that's my go-to place I'm curious why you decided to leave at 19 I know, was there a reason why you decided to go then rather than waiting a few years? Or was it just, I want to go as soon as I I, can? I do think a lot of Australians go on that kind of big trip. They kind of leave Australia and sort of definitely growing up there, you can really feel a long way away from the rest of the world. And actually, I would always feel the fuck up and then I'd always try and be the good child. So I went to university when I finished school and I started a law degree and I kind of largely did it because my sister didn't finish school and my brother walked out of school as well. So I thought, okay, I've got to make my parents proud of me or or pleased with me. And I went to university, totally ill-equipped at the time to go, really uh, like on the verge of kind of really getting into drugs. And also it's ridiculous to think of myself as a lawyer. If you'd know me, it's just like not something, but you know, I got into it. I thought I'm going to do it. It was the university that my father had gone to and he was really thrilled about that. And I only lasted there about probably just under a year actually. But when I started university, I also at the same time started a job washing up in a kitchen. And there was an amazing woman. It was a tiny, um, beautiful little kind of kitchen in a place called Double Bay in Australia. And it was this amazing woman who trained in Paris and she'd come back and she was doing all these really beautiful traditional kind of French, you know, puff pastries and ballantines of duck. And I used to just wash up in the corner and she, I think she sort of saw that I was probably this kind of not very confident kind of teenager. And she'd sort of say to me at the end of kind of lunch service, I'm just going to make some puff pastry now. Do you want to come and stand with me? 
while I make it. And gradually she brought me more and more into the kitchen and I completely fell in love with cooking at the same time as not being particularly well. And she'd gone to school in Paris and I wanted to go to the school that she'd gone to in Paris um, where she learned to cook. And so that was my kind of excuse to leave Sydney and I, I went to live in Paris. What does heroin use look like for people who are sort of, I'm sure, listening and who think, oh my God, heroin, it's like an awful drug. It's sort of, it's it, like you said, it's very scary. Connotations mm-hmm. of heroin like, imply, you know, you're injecting it into yourself. You're completely stoned. You can't function. You were obviously functioning on it a bit. I mean, as much yeah. as an addict functions, right? Yeah. I mean, and at times I'm sure as we'll go on to, it goes up and down. But what at that stage at 19 when you're working in, well, prior to that, when you're working in the kitchen, what did the heroin use look like? How many times a day were you taking it? So when I I started using heroin and when I went to Paris, I kind of stopped for the first year. And I probably then started drinking a little bit more. And I think I also probably wanted to go because I kind of wanted to stop what was happening. Somehow it was a kind of preservation thing as um, much as anything else. And then later on living in Paris, I kind of ended up living in this house and there was another person there who was using heroin and I kind of got back into it. I mean, I suppose it's like all kind of using most of your time is, you know, as they talk about in the fellowship is consumed with ways and means of getting more. And so you, you've either got it and you have it. And then as soon as you've taken it, your brain is just on, how am I going to get the next? Where's the money going to come from? How am I going to score? And it becomes this kind of incredibly sort of all consuming. Yeah. It just consumes your whole life. I remember always thinking when I first took it and I looked in the mirror when I, like I said to you, and I, I felt free. I often feel about addiction that is a spiritual quest. It's almost like that thing of just wanting to feel at ease. And at first I really felt at ease with it. And then it becomes this incredible prison that you actually can't get out of. And so the obsession is there the whole time. And is it ever enough? Nothing's ever really enough unless you're completely passed out. And uh, it was a really nice feeling. I mean, I mean, apart from vomiting in that very first night, you know, it was, it's a kind of dreamlike state. It's a sort of, um, you're half awake, you're half asleep, you're sort of in this kind of twilight world. And that felt really nice. And then it stops working in a way, but you're still chasing it. And that went on for a really long time. And how were you taking it? I actually started injecting it, which is because in Australia, which is quite strange, when certainly in the kind of early 80s, the only heroin that came through was Thai heroin, which is white and you can't smoke it. So everybody injected it. And then I came to England and Paris and there was um, a sort of a brown heroin, which is I think Afghani and you can smoke it on a foil, but I injected it. And, and I mean, I know because I've lived in halfway houses with recovering heroin addicts. I mean, yeah, the means to which you kind of try and get it into your bloodstream, you know, as, as mm. time goes on faster and faster and faster and then trying to hide it and injecting in between like, your toes and your yeah. your finger. I mean, it's, it is. And again, you know, I, I haven't had a problem with drugs, but my issue's been a lot around food and it's the same mindset. It's like planning a binge or whatever. Yeah. It's sort of that, oh my God, I've got, yes, yeah, so you've got to get your fix. And, and so I totally relate to, and I'll, I'll never forget going to a, 
actually it was an NA meeting. And uh, the guy who was chairing the meeting said, oh God, you know, it would just be so great if I had an addiction to broccoli or exercise or something. And I was just sitting there and I was like, no, it's exactly the same. Mm. You know, you just, I know that heroin can kill you obviously, but an addiction to exercise can kill you. An addiction to broccoli and yeah, can also kill you. Actually, I honestly think that probably eating disorders are the hardest, you know, and I think about that a lot because it's like, in many ways, it's very simple for us, isn't it? You just stop, mm. not in that Nancy Reagan or yeah. just say no kind of way, but you can be abstinent, whereas you've got to constantly navigate and negotiate with your drug of choice mm. because you need it to stay alive. Yeah. I often feel that. I think that must be such a painful illness to... to and, you know, the, the truth is, and probably not in the same way, but addicts, I mean, food can very quickly become a problem as soon as you get sober, you know, or relationships can become a problem or work can become a problem, you know. It's just trying to how to navigate that, which is so challenging. I was going to ask you, because that was my experience definitely of living with drug addicts, is a lot of the time, especially women, actually discover that once they put down the drug, they suddenly develop these horrible eating disorders and actually it was the eating issue as opposed to the drug addiction that had been the primary issue. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely have to really watch my eating. You know, definitely when you stop taking drugs, like there is a big hole in the soul and food is like, I think so many addicts do kind of like struggle with food and all of a sudden you haven't eaten anything for like years or not really a bowl of cereal with eight, you know, spoons of sugar because you love sugary things. When and then all of a sudden you kind of balloon, you've been this kind of tiny, thin person, never really thinking about food. And then all of a sudden, I, you know, I've got a lot of friends, you've put on quite a lot of weight, maybe when you first get sober, and then you struggle with that. And, you know, it can be a kind of, it is complicated, for sure. And I, I can forget about eating quite a lot, and then get thrilled that I've forgotten about it. Oh, my God, I haven't eaten it. it's four in the afternoon. And you know, I would be lying if I said, I just forgot about food. I'm like, a lot of my self-esteem is probably tied to not the way I look in the way that I think like I'm amazing or something, but I, I struggle if I feel like I'm carrying a bit of extra weight or, but I, I also think that's in my experience, there's very few people I know who don't have some sort of issue around food, if I'm really honest. How has that been being a chef? Because I can imagine almost being around food in some ways makes it easier because you're handling it, you're talking about it, and in a way it kind of suppresses your appetite mm -hmm. because you're just like, so fed up with it. Mm. A lot of chefs say when I get home in the evening, all I want to eat is a bowl of cereal because mm -hmm. I just don't want to think about it. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because it, it does suppress your appetite, I think. If you're around food all day and kind of, I always think it's the food smells and you're kind of tasting all day, even if it's minuscule, like, you know, because every kind of butter sauce that comes to the pass or every sort of like puree that comes up, you sort of taste a tiny teaspoon. So if you need to adjust it before it goes on the plate and stuff. And so sometimes, you know, you just don't register hunger all day and then it kind of goes from zero to a thousand and I'm starving and I realise I haven't kind of eaten properly and then I'll go home and I'll eat, I don't eat cereal, but I'll eat sourdough and like, yeah, toast and Vegemite, toast and cheese. Like, I think the thing is a lot of cooks too, there's a lot of a desire to please and nurture people, but you don't ever do it to yourself. So, I mean, my kids aren't at home anymore, so you could go into my fridge and you'll probably see sort of a jar of olives and maybe some butter and a couple of things of water. There's very little there. And I do try and look after myself in terms of eating healthily apart from anything else. And as I've gotten older, I'm really aware. I, I mean, I struggled with exercise. I just couldn't get myself together on exercise. 
but I have in the last 15 years. And um, a lot of what I do is about, I, I really try and eat like vegetables and grains and like, I, because I, I need to be strong for what I do. And I really enjoy exercise now. I have to say, I've never got an addiction for it. Like there's not a time that I don't, I'm not driving there or on my way there that sort of, I don't negotiate with myself about not doing it, hate it the whole way through. And then I'm so glad that I've done it sort of thing. And um, a, a lot of my recovery, actually, I was thinking about it before I came here. I'm, I'm so, sorry, probably the most boring person because I'm, a lot of it's been about discipline for me. I'm very disciplined. I, I don't know if it's because I'm a Virgo and that's my natural state or it's my way of feeling safe in recovery. So, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've kind of seen those things where, you know, in the beginning they say do really simple things like shine your shoes, make your bed, very kind of 1930s sort of idea of, you know, the 12 steps and the principles of recovery. And I've always done that stuff. Like I get up, I, I could never leave the house without making my bed. I won't leave a bill unpaid. I have a commitment that if a letter comes through the door when I get home at night, I open it got this obsession about doing what I say I'll do because I raised two kids and especially my eldest I didn't get sober till she was a bit older and so it was this thing of how can I make amends to them and my amends has always been through being incredibly present and incredibly um if I say oh yeah we'll do that well, let's go to Mexico next Christmas and then never kind of follow up and it's like no I said we're going to Mexico we're going to Mexico um but it has actually served me as a person very well is just to do what I say I'm going to do if I don't let people know and live a life that has a routine and some sort of discipline in it. I remember relapsing once um, and having been sober and being really unhappy and probably with no purpose in my life. And I, I do think that's a real struggle when you get sober. You've got to find a meaning and a purpose and you've got to fill that kind of hole inside, you know, I mean, through meetings, through spiritual principles and, and the steps, but also finding a meaning to get up every morning, you know, and something that gives you pleasure and joy. And I am, um, and I remember when I relapsed that I just was waiting for it. And I thought, my God, this is going to be amazing. I could remember how beautiful it felt. And, you know, I was just, just going to disappear into this kind of really lovely soft place and it was nothing like I remembered it. Mm. it I didn't enjoy it and I felt I remember once someone saying to me actually when we just before we relapsed he said if you want to use now just remember how much you're going to use want to use tomorrow morning after you've used tonight and that was the only thing it unleashed was the demon and the addiction that was had been at bay and um and then I was off and running for another like two or three years so it's never what you you think it's going to be hurt to healing has partnered with brown advisory to bring you this podcast brown advisory a global investment management firm is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world a big thank you to brown advisory for supporting my mission What was working in kitchens? Because you worked in some incredibly reputable kitchens in London. I mean, you were working at the Savoy for a while. I worked at the Dorchester, the Dorchester. actually, yeah, under a chef called Anton Mossman. It was actually very, very tough. And I, I found a way in my world to work in a way that I really enjoy it. And a lot of my work life has been about trying to define a place where I feel like comfortable 
it's much, much less so now, but it was incredibly difficult to be a woman in a very male dominated world and kind of to fight for your kind of voice in that world or like just to stand up to a sort of kitchen that's sort of maybe got 18 men in it and you. I remember when I, I left Paris after three years and I came to London, I came to work at the Dorchester and I kept on thinking, this isn't what I signed up for. You know, you kind of, the Dorchester particularly has a huge kitchen. It's, um, I was there a couple of years ago and it's still the same, but it has an um, escalator in it. It's an underground world. A lot of kitchens are underground worlds and they're kind of strip lighting, no windows. And you go in in the morning, especially in the winter when it's dark and you come out at night when it's dark. And I didn't love it. I thought this is, I love cooking and this isn't cooking to me, you know. But in the last sort of 25 years of my work, probably I, you know, I was at Petersham Nurseries for like 11 years and that was a beautiful kitchen that was all made of wood. And we looked outside at plants and trees and, and then actually at the kitchen, the kitchen I have now at spring has beautiful big windows. We've got kitchen over two floors, not with an escalator in it, but, um, and they've both got really big, beautiful windows and the industry has changed so much. I mean, we have, I think 22 chefs at spring and at the moment, 15 of them are women. So it's really different and it's really nice. And I'm really proud of that, actually. It's like really proud that spring is kind of a safe, really nice place to work. Yeah, incredible. And I think your environment just makes, I mean, such a difference to your mental health in in every respect. And and people talk about chefs as actually being one of the professions that can lead to the illest mental health, really, because a lot of them struggle with alcohol, drugs. It's such a high pressure environment. The hours are so antisocial. It's not a nice environment necessary to work. And the fact that you've created that environment through your own experience and for wanting to do it. Yeah, I know. I look around because that is so true, you know, and certainly I was working in kitchens when I was a lot younger and they were kind of sort of drug-fueled places. And it is, it's very antisocial. You know, you're probably working Friday night, Saturday night, maybe you're working Sunday when all your friends are out doing things. And so you tend to stick together as a group. You know, you'll go out and drink afterwards when you're finished at one in the morning or whatever. And But I look around Spring's Kitchen actually now and I think they're all so fresh-faced. Nobody, nobody smokes cigarettes. Like, I mean, I don't know if they take drugs, but I certainly see no evidence of like people coming with sort of like hangovers or sort of yeah it's different and the industry has changed tremendously as well what was it like then in your 20s so you talk about starting to use her and again you're working hard then you become a Mm mum what was your using I mean what did it look like and you had you went to treatment I think you reached out to your dad and he Mm -hmm. sent you off to treatment Mm -hmm. will you just take us through chronologically what happened yeah so I um I've been into treatment quite a few times, I'm ashamed to say. I almost sometimes think I could write a book about different treatment centers. But I first went into treatment when I was probably about 23 or 24, and I really didn't want to get clean. It was a lot of pressure from family. And I went to a treatment center in England, actually. And um, I probably didn't stay sober very long. I might have maybe stayed clean for a year. And then I went back to using. And then I struggled. And, And as I went on, my using changed. I stopped using heroin probably by the time of 28, 29 and, and moved into kind of like over-the-counter drugs, which I think are so, you know, like codeines and, and drinking. It was just became an easier way to use really, you know, although it became obsessive as well, you know, going from, look, I can't go to that chemist. I went yesterday. I mean, you know, all that stuff. I mean, I'm sure food is like that. It's, oh my God, they saw me buy, you know, yeah. five <laughs> sourdoughs yesterday. I can't go back there, you know. And then I had my eldest child and I was a single mum for quite a long time. And then I sort of went in and out of using. I can't explain it. I never 
kind of went back to where I was in my 20s, but I was living in this kind of half-life twilight zone, not happy sober, not happy using. And that went on for a really long time. And they were probably the most painful years of all, really, because I was, I also knew because I'd been into treatment that there was another way and I didn't have to be doing what I was doing. And yet I didn't, you know, I think a lot of recovery and I think people might disagree, but like for me, a lot of recovery is about being brave like just brave to take on the day. Mm. And I wasn't brave enough to live in a world without a crutch. And now I think a lot of this, I mean, half, most of what I do in my day, I don't want to do. Like if I open up the question, like, do I really want to have that meeting? Do I really want to, um, you know, have to talk to that person about something? I don't want to do it. And a lot of it is um, really not like listening to my head either feeling the fear and doing it anyway or um, realizing that my my feelings aren't facts. You know, they're all the little things in recovery you hear that you can really hold on to actually and just despite the way I feel doing things anyway because I know that at the end of the day is what's going to make me feel better um, when I put my head on the pillow at nine. You're so right and I love that saying that my feelings aren't facts because we can't trust our feelings like we really can't and also we can't trust our thoughts Mm -mm. and once you've got that baseline it was very interesting what you said about once you know that there's a different way and there's a better Mm -hmm. way and that's been my experience of treatment and by no means should be you should be ashamed of being in treatment having been in treatment several times because I have too and it's it's a hard process and I often say to people who ask me well you know my daughter's got terrible anorexia what should I do or she's got awful OCD or he's got you know horrible issues with exercise and I just say, you know, a lot of it is time and you have to have those knocks. But being in that limbo, I relate to that so much because that is the most painful bit. So painful, yeah. I mean, it's interesting what you say about time because I was actually f- for quite a long time a, a bit of a serial relapse and um, not a bit. I relapsed a lot and got clean for a period of time and then relapsed again. And, you know, the hardest, most painful thing is to come back into a meeting, even though probably everybody's welcoming you, but the shame and you look around and it looks so easy for everybody and everybody's got it. And why can't you get it? And um, people, and I don't think they mean to say it, but it's the one thing that people say to you, if you, you know, you get 90 and they go, so what's going to be different this time is the kind of thing that people always say to you in the room. So how's this going to be different? And I could never answer that. And I'm exactly like you. I've had a million rock bottoms and I had worse rock bottoms in my 20s. And I I sort of driveled to the finish line, you know, when I actually finally got sober. But it's like, I do believe it's a gift. I mean, I know that sounds funny. I feel it so much. Like it wasn't my time to get sober. I wasn't in the right place. And when it finally happened, the biggest game changer for me was one day, one plus one plus one plus one. It was just the days Mm -hmm. adding up. You also hear another expression in the fellowship is don't give up before the miracle happens. And I always gave up before the miracle happens. And the miracle actually was nothing kind of earth shattering. It was just adding one day to another. And then my life got too rich, too valuable. And I just, I'm now, I mean, you can always relapse. And I'm not saying that with that. I, I have so much to lose and so much about my life that I love and like people in it, my children, my relationships, with my, my kids, my friends, my work life my life feels so rich and I'm also used to being sober you know it's a habit like Mm. do you know what I mean it's just that's who I that's what I do that's who I am you know I don't and I don't miss it anymore but that's not to say that something couldn't happen but it is about like giving time time Mm. I think 
Totally. And I think, as you said, it's knowing your bottom line, like behaviours and the things that you just have to do. And when you create that life that's richer and more fulfilling, it's much easier not to go back to that place because you realise that actually there is more to life. Whereas that horrible place, that very lonely, isolating place of when you're in the thicks of the addiction, it's like you've got nothing else. Life is just this dark hole. Mm. And actually, if you if you cling to the drug of choice then actually it gives you something and I think well it gives you a purpose in a funny way isn't it because you feel so bad about yourself don't you that's what I find hard is getting out of that cycle of shame Mm. judgment Mm. guilt no self-confidence and Mm. I think it's building that up and I don't know how you found that now in like believing in yourself Mm. and you know, maybe you know, you're living on the other side of the world to your family but your dad moved to London didn't he before Mm. yeah how is it when he came back I mean, it was hard. My father's been dead for a really long time now, 20 years, I think, or maybe just over. And he's probably never really seen me clean. And like, I I often think I was someone that he worried about. I was like a broken bird that how he could fix was, was put me into treatment. He didn't really know what else to do. He'd kind of maybe want to throw a little bit of money at the problem or... You know, and I wasn't close to him because of it, which makes, I'm very sad about that really. But uh, when you're talking about having self-esteem and stuff, I remember someone saying to me, I heard someone really, really early on when I got sober and I heard that to have self-esteem, you have to do esteemable things. And I really held on to that as well. And like a part of me, me being sober today is trying to do the next right thing you know, to be a kind person, to be a good boss, to be the best mother I can be. They're the things that make has made my life richer. And they would have been all the things that would have been the most boring thing in the world if you said to me, like the the gems of a life in recovery is to do all the kind of things like paying your bill, not not, not paying your tax at the end of the year, like phoning that person back when you said you were going to phone them back or at the time you... You know, and they're all the things that have increased my self-esteem. And, you know, I still have days, you know, where I feel shitty and or not very good about myself or, but like I have become a better human being as the years have gone on. And I actually feel really proud of that. I'm actually probably a person that I would like not be overly critical of. (laughs) And connection, is that something that's good? You've alluded to your friends and how important they are. Yeah. I think connection, you know, as... Yeah, Yoham Harry says it's like the opposite of addiction. And actually, if you, but I can imagine again being a single mom, that can sometimes be quite lonely and isolating. Yeah. But you know, now, obviously, your kids are much older. But do you think your friends play a crucial role in totally? Yeah. Your- and most of my friends are sober, and not because I met them in the fellowship. I met them a lot of them taking drugs, and they everybody you know sadly either died that I was taking drugs with or have got sober. So I've got a lot of friends who are in the in recovery and long-term recovery. And that's really nice because you can kind of talk in shorthand when they're your best friends. And it's like, oh my God, I get it. You know how you're feeling. You know, I feel like that too, which is a huge comfort that kind of that connecting and knowing that, you know, you're not alone and oh my God, my, my feelings are just like your feelings. You know, I'm not kind of unique or, and they are really important to me. I, have a small group of friends I think I know a lot of people but I kind of keep my my friendships quite small Mm. a lot because I work probably too much and um there's not that time and I'm not very good in a social situation like I just know myself now so 
if this is something I do need to work on because if I get invited somewhere and it's like a drinks party or something I'll go oh I'm going to be a new me I'm going to go to drinks party I'm it's sky 2.0 this year I'm going to drinks parties I'm you know and then they come like there was one last week and I said yes to it and when it came to it I didn't have the courage to walk in on my own and I actually drove around the block and I was like do it do it you can just go in walk around the room go out and I was just like I can't I just don't have that in me tonight to do it and I I do need that is something I really do need to work on it's like I I want me I want to be something different than I am I want to be this kind of crazy social person and I'm just not that person you know I like small I like one-on-one or dinner with four friends by nature I replenish and get my energy from going within So I need a lot of quiet time. Like my home is really my sanctuary. I very rarely have anyone in it, you know, and I feel like I spend all day talking to people in the restaurant and stuff and I need to retreat. Mm. I think some people like gets energy from other people, Mm. but I don't get my energy. I find other people can be very draining and I I need to go within. And I do know that about myself, but I would like myself to be someone different, Mm. you know, and I'm, I'm just not. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes it's just that acceptance and just being yeah. like, you know what, I don't need a Sky 2.0. No. Like, Sky 1.0 is just perfect. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's just know. great. What do you what would you say now? Are your apps? I mean, you've alluded to the exercise and the importance of routine. But what would you say are your like absolute bottom line behaviors that you have to do every day? I have to have a good night's sleep. Like I have to get into bed at a reasonable time. I have to feed my mind or my soul in some way that isn't to do with work. So that could be going to a meeting or I definitely don't go to a meeting every day, by the way, but, um, or it could be reading and that could be reading a really beautiful, like a book or a piece of writing, or I do need to eat properly. I do need to have something for breakfast as much as I really don't feel like having something for breakfast. Yeah. I think sleep's huge for me. Like the world seems very bleak if I'm tired, like mm. I am a different person if I'm tired. It's mm. it's a danger place for me. You know how they talk about hang, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. I often wonder if I'm sometimes lonely, but I, I don't identify it as a feeling, which is really, I think it's a feeling I have a lot, a lot of shame around. Mm. I don't know why. It's a feeling that I just don't think it's okay to be lonely, you know. But I do know that sleep deprivation for me, if I get to bed after 12, I'm going to feel crappy in the morning, even if I've slept seven hours. Yeah, it's about self-care, really. I think that, that that bottom line is eating, sleeping, trying to do maybe exercise four times a week, plugging into friends, just reaching out to people and definitely trying to make time to a meeting. And I can be, I, days can rush by and I can feel okay and think, oh, I don't really need a meeting. Oh, it's Sunday morning. Actually, I'm really tired. I'd rather go to pilates and to an exercise class to a meeting today and I it's just trying to kind of put those kind of touchstones in and make sure I do it's kind of like just all good habits isn't it it is yeah and I think you find the things that work for you and Mm. you just kind of try and stick at them and then they might not work forever Mm. but for the time being if they work it's great yeah Sky, it's been such a pleasure. Oh. I could talk to you for hours and I hope this is the first of many conversations. Oh, but yeah. Me too. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for asking me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation 
So please spread the word. Thank you.